You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Anticipation. The circus arrives without warning. No announcements precede it. No paper notices on downtown posts and billboards. No mentions or advertisements in local newspapers. It is simply there when yesterday it was not. The towering tents are striped in white and black. No golds and crimsons to be seen. No color at all save for the neighboring trees and the grass of the surrounding fields. Black and white stripes on gray sky countless tents of varying shapes and sizes, with an elaborate wrought-iron fence encasing them in a colorless world. Even what little ground is visible from outside is black or white, painted or powdered or treated with some other circus trick. But it is not open for business. Not just yet. Within hours, everyone in town has heard about it. By afternoon, the news has spread several towns over. Word of mouth is a more effective method of advertisement than typeset words and exclamation points on paper pamphlets or posters. It is impressive and unusual news, the sudden appearance of a mysterious circus. People marvel at the staggering height of the tallest tents. They stare at the clock that sits just inside the gates that no one can properly describe. And the black sign painted in white letters that hangs upon the gates, the one that reads, opens at nightfall, closes at dawn. Aaron Morgenstern is an artist and the creator of the Phantomwise Tarot, a 78-card deck printed entirely in black and white. Her first novel is The Night Circus. Thank you for joining me, Erin. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So how long was the tarot in your life? (laughs) (laughs) I had an interest in tarot cards ever since I was probably in high school in that sort of like new age like phase. Um, But I didn't actually start seriously studying it until I was just out of college. I got my first deck. And and I'm not a very good tarot reader myself, but I I love the the symbolism and and the artwork. And there's so many different beautiful tarot decks. So I, I thought maybe I'd try my hand at designing my own. Well, the the pictures I've seen of it are really gorgeous. Why in black and white? Was was the circus already in mind when you created the tarot deck? Um, they kind of influenced each other. I was working on, I'm actually not really sure which one started first. I, I might have started the tarot deck before the, the circus, um, the very, very beginning. But um, I think there's something very interesting about black and white because it so much becomes about light and shadow. And I think sometimes by stripping away the color information, you see the subject, uh, especially in, in that in artwork or film. I think it, it's a very interesting visual. Now, I, that kind of speaks, I think, to the whole tone of the book. The whole book is a very delicate and beautiful and nuanced and extremely complicated balancing <laughs> machine back and forth. And... and one of the things that interested me in this is your kind of understanding of conflict, and I'm which is I think is at the core of this novel, and I'm wondering how the book began. If you could describe the process of writing it, did you um, start out with the conflict, or did you start out just exploring the the avenues of the circus, which it, is so it started evocative. with the circus. It was at the, before there was any conflict. <laughs> there was just the circus. I actually started it as it was a tangent. In another book that I was working on, I, I kind of got very bored with what I was writing, so I sent my characters to the circus, and the circus was tremendously more interesting. Um, so I abandoned what I had been working on and focused directly on the circus and kind of developing it as an imaginary location and, and like working on just 
expanding what it was about, like who had built it and what was going on within its tents. Now, as you uh, created these different tents, and did you uh, already, did you meet the characters in the tents, so to speak? I kind of did encounter the characters in the circus itself. I wanted to have a contortionist, so that's where Tsukiko came from. I um, knew the circus itself had to have a proprietor, and that's where Chandresh came from. I needed someone to be taking notes for Chandresh, and that's where Marco came from originally. So that was kind of how the, the characters evolved uh, like out of the circus itself. Now, uh, when you were uh, doing this and writing, you did this for two national novel, novel writing, writing months. Yes, the, the, um, that original abandoned story was one national novel writing month where mm-hmm. I discovered the circus. And then the next two years during national novel writing month, I just wrote about the circus. Did you know, um, as you were writing about the circus, did you had you researched circus? Is this something you were always always interested in? Or? No, I don't really like the circus. Not like in a traditional sort of clowns and lions and, and that sort of three ring traditional circus. I like the idea of having an entertainment venue that's immersive. I was a theater major in college. I, I like like kind of um, avant garde, interesting like um, performance art kind of theater that kind of sort of breaks boundaries. And um, I like the idea of being immersed in what you're seeing, where it's all around you and not just sitting in a chair passively watching a show, to have something that's interactive. And that was, I think, where the circus came from, to have um, something that you could explore rather than just watch. You know, what strikes me is there's a real parallel here between the act of reading, which is something you have to act actively engage in. You have to open up the book, read the words, process them, and go through that whole reading experience. And the way you describe the circus, which is very similar, and that's a kind of similar experience of art where you have to actively engage in it. And it's not in though it calls itself a circus and it has some aspects of the circus in many ways it is much more like a installation performance art it, piece it is it's performance art dressed up in the trappings <laughs> of a circus <laughs> now uh, when you were uh, creating this uh, all these various pieces um you're a, a visual artist too and you um created these tarot cards were you also like sketching out and maps do you have kind of obsessive notebooks <laughs> filled with pages and pages of your drawings of I the really characters don't I, I like to say I paint what I can't write and I write what I can't paint <laughs> so really all the the circus stuff I never I never drew any sort of illustrations I, I didn't really sketch for it the only things I really did were um, I started to build paper models of tents at one point because I just wanted to make sure I had like logistical things right I built the star gazer out of paper when I was trying to figure it's sort of a sideways fer- Ferris wheel. And so when I was trying to figure out the logistics of where you would enter and how it would work, I actually built it out of paper. Your novel is has this really um, beautiful feel to it. And it's set, you know, at the um, end of the uh, 19th century, early 20th century. Why did you choose that time and place to set it in? And how much research did you do to get things right? I, because it has a really has a good kind of Dickensian feel to it. I think it's it, it is Dickensian in a bit. I I, I like that tone. I, I've always been fond of it in literature and movies. I I like the the aesthetic of that entire time period. I like corsets and top hats and and that sort of thing. So visually, I think was really it worked for what I wanted to have the the tone of the circus. I think it is a, a circus that's dressed up in top hat and tails. And so I, I think the the formality of 
it it worked well with that era. And I also like doing it historic. So it was a big era for actual traveling circuses and, and that sort of thing. I didn't really do that much research. I kind of went on just my own sort of gut, like familiarity with what made sense to me and, and what evoked that tone. And I tried to make sure I wasn't being too terribly anachronistic. I was sad that I couldn't have cotton candy because it wasn't invented until 1914. But um, uh, other than that, it was really just mostly, uh, I wasn't trying to make it be a historical novel. I was trying to have a, a historic influence on something that's really more fantastical. You know, that's uh, it is a, it does have a beautiful sense of the fantastic. And you talked about it's not a historical novel, and I'd agree. It has a, there's a feeling of timelessness to this novel, even though it's set in very different definite times, and you give a bunch of very specific dates. And you have a very interesting uh, uh, n- intuition, vision of the nature of time. And I think time is really integral to this novel because it's integral to the kind of uh, fantastical tales you evoke, uh, fairy tales, Sleepy mm-hmm. Hollow. There's a lot of Sleepy Hollow in this book. And and I like that idea of time moving in different paces in different places. Yeah, I feel like some of the best like, classic stories, they don't feel like they're associated very like, particularly with a, with a time. Or, like they, they feel timeless, that like once upon a time quality. It, 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 it kind of lends itself to a story that just feels like it keeps going on like outside of time and and since time is sort of a a theme within the book and and clocks and and all that sort of cyclical nature of things uh, it it definitely sort of all tied together nicely with the tone of the book now you had talked about uh meeting some of the characters in the various tents you needed an owner Chandresh and Marco to take notes um once you kind of had this talk about, uh, give us kind of a an, an idea of how you first discovered what the you know the major plot thread to this novel is the conflict that's at the core of it. The, the major conflict was brought about after I had finished the book <laughs> really? and realized that it had no plot <laughs> because I, I started querying literary agents with mm-hmm. this sort of just a lot of sprawling atmosphere in the circus and not a lot of story. But um, at that point, I think I'd kind of lost perspective and, and needed like a little guidance. But um, I was lucky enough to, to stumble upon agents who were actually interested in the potential that, that the project had. And all of them said that it needed a, a stronger plot. It needed more conflict. And so I took the characters that I had and sort of started moving them around. And I, I struck upon like this, uh, the whole idea of a the magical competition. And I think that partially came about because I had I already had everything in black and white. It it sort of lent itself well to being a game of chess. So so that's where the game aspect kind of started and like coming into my head and then went from there. You know, this book has a great sense of the fantastic to it. It seems kind of a both in slightly indistinct in a in a good way, but also very practical and matter of fact. And you have a really nice uh, vision of things that look like magic but aren't and things that don't look like magic but are. And I really like that kind of tension going back and forth because it really travels. And then the two often infect one another or or infiltrate one another in a way. So you really can't say it's this or that. And for a novel that has all black and white on the cover, there's a lot of gray in here. (laughs) It was always about black and white and shades of gray. And and I think... I like things that are magic or fantastical. I like when they seem possible. Like I, I like my my fantasy very.
very tied to reality that the, the idea that maybe the circus could like pop up in your own backyard and, and maybe just maybe the, the magic tricks are real. Now, um, as you developed the kind of the systems of magic for this book, did you kind of uh, were they did they grow out of the prose or once they grew out of the prose, did you kind of like step back and say, OK, I have to have this kind of thing here and this kind of thing here? And or did they grow out of just the different characters? I think they kind of grew out of the characters. I, I knew I wanted sort of a contrast between a, a magic that was um constructed and alchemical and done in, in writing and, and charms and, and that sort of like academic magic and then a magic that was sort of very visceral. But I think at the core, they're sort of the same thing. They're just different approaches. The two magicians who kind of begin this novel, Mr. Alexander H. and Hector Bowen, these two guys are not really very nice people, are they? <laughs> and, and I think that what it's this I gets to a very interesting aspect of your book, in that you like all of your characters. We like everybody here, and they pretty much like one another. So I, I can see that getting a conflict for you must have been kind of tough. I, I knew, uh, even though so much of the book is black and white, I never wanted a, a good and evil scenario. I never wanted a bad guy, mm-hmm. and I wanted. A, everyone to be complicated. Um, and, and I hope I was successful in that. But because um, I think it's sometimes too easy to just have a, a someone who's just a bad guy for the sake of being a bad guy or someone who's just there to provide conflict. I, I really wanted it to be everyone has their reasons for everything they do. Hector Bowen, he brings up one of the protagonists. Uh, her name is Celia. And that kind of magic is more um, that's a physical magic, mm-hmm. in a sense, more real. And, and I'm wondering, as a, as a writer, what kind of influences or what kind of books that you read evoked that same kind of magic for you? And, and I mean, I, I'm guessing that reading must have been a form of magic for you as you were growing up. <laughs> Definitely. I was a big reader, and, and I always loved those sort of magical books. And, and um, I, I was always a huge Lewis Carroll fan back um, in the day. And I used to actually, when I was really little, I would read in the back of my closet to better immerse myself in the book, to just kind of shut out the outside world and then just live in the book for a while. And I, I think that that's always a kind of book that I loved, like that sort of magical escape sort of book. Like I was a big Roald Dahl fan too. And I think growing up on that sort of thing, I am I still love a sense of the fantastical, like that, that kind of magical possibility layer over the story. You know, one of the things that interested me though is that the two characters who are arguably the least likable and, and the most... Uh, I guess, antagonistic towards one another, who actually do have a conflict. They mm-hmm. are the two who launched this contest. They eventually, they, be, they are the least distinct. And this is, I think, very deliberate on your part. And it suggests that you think that the more that as humans we approach conflict, the less human we become. Oh, you give me a lot of credit for being very thoughtful. <laughs> like I, I think um, it is likely something that maybe kind of subconsciously, oh. I but it wasn't intentional. But I, I think I kind of understood like the, what this sort of attitude would do to person. They're also very, very old, and they've mm-hmm. been doing this for a very long time. And, and I think both of them are fading, and, and they're kind of... Literally. Trying, yes, <laughs> literally in some cases. But um, and, and 
they've started living vicariously through um, their respective students and, and kind of have lost that connection to, to um, and there's so many more important relationships and with other characters or who are making connections that they're not able to make because of like they're kind of jaded and fading. You know, as you uh, bring together the circus, this must have been really fun for you because you we meet all these great characters, uh, John Dresch, Frederick Thiessen, uh, Lonnie and Tara Burgess, Mr. Barris, uh, Madame uh, Pava, Mademoiselle Pava. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, talk about, uh, you know, you had some of these at the outset. Um, talk about, like, creating the circus and these first scenes and, and orchestrating the midnight dinners. <laughs> uh, midnight dinners came across as I just wanted um, an interesting sort of dinner party that was, a um, Sean Dresch was one of my favorite characters just because he's so kind of artsy and eccentric and, and like um, I, I wanted to have not just a, a dinner party, but if he was going to throw a dinner party, it was going to be something like spectacular. And, and I, I think um, I also wanted a, um, kind of ways to see how the, lives of the creators influenced the tone of the circus. And I think that you have a proprietor that throws midnight dinner parties kind of um, influences the fact that it ends up being a nocturnal circus. Um, but I also like the idea of having like kind of a non-traditional mealtime and, and have a sort of sense of ceremony of starting right at midnight. And, and it sort of has, a, it becomes something special. And it's not just sitting down and having dinner. It's, it's an occasion. Well, it's certainly an occasion with the various foods you describe. I, I love these descriptions of food. They're almost like something out of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I, I think perhaps I, I was a chef in a past life or something, and now I'm kind of making things up in my mind because I'm not a very good cook. But I can conceive of things that might be interesting. I, you know, one of the things that interested me most were the characters of uh, uh, Mr. Barris and, and Frederick Thiessen because this, these two characters, um, Mr. Barris is kind of the engineer for the circus. And I like this idea of science that becomes so complicated that it, there's a, a bit of magic at the edges. And, and you do this a lot throughout this book. You take things that make sense and make perfect sense and then you give us a result that seems just a little bit more than could be accomplished by the engineering. And we get this kind of feel for um, magic infiltrating this world. And I think that's a really interesting uh, literary technique. <laughs> I think I wanted to play with the idea of things that are real, that exist, that that could seem like magic. I think one of the things when I started playing with the, the that Herthesen is a, a clockmaker, that um, I don't know how a clock works. I, I don't know how all those little wonderful gears and cogs like fit together, and, and I just know what the end result looks like and that it it ticks and it talks and, and it tells me what time it is. And I think there is sort of an aspect of it, it can seem like it's magic, especially when you, you kind of take a, a simple idea of a clock and make it into like a fantastical cuckoo clock, which we First, Herthesen makes amazing works of art that are also clocks, and I think the same sort of thing with Mr. Barris being an engineer. Like, y you can create these things that really do seem like magic, and in having also real magic that was that's at the same time being 
passed off as stage magic. I thought that the dichotomy of having like things that were also not magical that seemed magic, it blurred the lines nicely for me. Yeah, I love that dichotomy. You know, I just talked to uh, Penn Gillette, and he said he he was talking about how there's a, a certain people in the audience who like to dress up in that kind of top ha- hat and tails thing. And he was saying, you know, if I had to go before those people and back in that time, all I'd have to do is wave a flashlight around and they'd be amazed. <laughs> More easily impressed back then. <laughs> well, it, it speaks to what you say. I mean, any uh, are the it's the famous Arthur C. Clarke quote: "Any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." It's true. And, and that's, you know, that gives this book kind of a nice, uh, to a degree, uh, a science fictional edge in a, in a manner of speaking. I think it does. I, I like I like fantasy that it's probably more considered low fantasy rather than like your like dragons and, and wizards sort of thing, even though arguably there are wizards in my book. Um, but it's I find it more interesting um, to have that possibility part that maybe if the technology gets like advanced enough, these things are possible. You know, you also speak to the kind of the magic and the uh, the power uh, of architecture. And this is, I'm wondering how much, did you study architecture No, again, maybe I was an architect in a past life. I love architecture. It's one of those things that really interests me. But I think I don't have a, a math brain. So the actual logistics of like how it's made like or like escape me, but the the visuals of um, the the final product are things that I can kind of come up with in my head. You know, when you said you don't have a math brain, <laughs> uh, I can understand that, but I actually think um, that probably helped you in writing this book in crafting that kind of vision where things blur off into look at where you you cuz you can describe this uh the clock that's at the center of the circus that kind of the whole thing literally revolves around mm-hmm. um that has that kind of feel of uh of something that's very technological but also kind of magic and it is literally kind of magic yeah is and it probably helped that I, I didn't really know whether or not it was possible it just it, it sounded like it could work <laughs> you know there's one point in there where they talk about books as art um and your your clocks have um pages you know that on um, books with pages that turn mm-hmm. to the second i'm wondering if you've seen any of these uh um, sculpt. If this was influenced by some, there's people now who carve sculpture out of I've books. I've seen so many beautiful book sculptures. I actually wasn't in my mind when I was making the clocks that actually have book pages. But oh, I love um, I love paper art in general, and especially when it's like paper like that has story on it already to then be elevated into to something else. I, I think they're absolutely gorgeous. Because that kind of shows up, too, in some of the tents where the walls are Shakespearean it's sonnets. true. I, I am a fan of... I like text in art. I think it adds a different level to also be reading at the same time that you're looking at a piece of art. In terms of the characters, it's really interesting because you give us the core of this circus. And, and we really like all these people in the circus. And then we meet Bailey. <laughs> So talk about when did Bailey come in? Was he an early edition? Bailey or? was always there. Bailey is, is one of the very first characters that, to come about because I needed an audience member. I needed Bailey and Herthesen, I think, were, were um, created for partially the same reason to have the person outside of the circus, to have that um, perspective of someone who's seeing it without seeing behind the curtain, without knowing what's going on 
backstage, so to speak. Um, and I think um, Bailey more serves the purpose of that character. Who he's the Alice to the Wonderland. He's the Charlie to the Chocolate Factory. Like that that sort of like character who is also important for the reader to to see the story through. Well, what's interesting when you say that for the reader to see the story because the reader has already seen what's on the other side. So that puts the reader in the middle of this kind of dichotomy. And I think that's – and these kind of dichotomies are really important to this book because everything in this book is balanced until everything comes out of balance. It's so true. It really is a book about balance and, and I wanted – I. I never wanted it to be one perspective on something. It was never one character's story. I always wanted it to be, um, it's it's the story of the circus, and that's a lot of different people's stories, and they sort of overlap and influence each other. I, I think you did a really good job, and and I because one of the dangers of doing what you're doing is losing focus. And it sounds mm-hmm. like when you brought this thing to the agent, that's where you were. You hadn't yep. achieved the focus yet. So um, talk about what kind of elements you introduced to give it this cuz it has a focus we even though the it's hard to say actually to a degree who the main characters are and i'm not going to give that <laughs> away uh, it it ha- you have the feeling when you read this book it's very satisfying in that manner oh good i'm i'm glad i accomplished it after all the like writing and rewriting but um i think it became about the circus, starting with the, the idea of the circus itself, to, to make the circus more than just a location, to have it have purpose. And it almost has a life of its own and a, a life that is endangered at some points. Um, and I think that's really and figuring that out and making the circus kind of more of a, an a key player in what was going on was really, I think, where things started to come together. So it wasn't just a setting. It was something more than that. It seems very organic. And it does seem like it has a life of its own. I mean, I would literally, about a third of the way through the book, I'm thinking, well, I mean, obviously, too, the circus is a big, is the main character. It, it I really guess. is. If, if you had to pick someone, I, I think, um, I, I usually come down to, if, if you have to pick a protagonist, it's probably Celia's story. Mm-hmm. But if you pick a main character, I think it's definitely the circus itself. This book has some very nice kind of uh, romantic threads that play through it and, you know, various love stories in, in various ways. And everything is really tangled up, though. Nothing is comes out straightforward, straight up. And I love that. Oh, good. I don't like a simple love story. I, I don't like a, a, a boy meets girl and they live happily ever after. I, I like a little bit of angst thrown in there. And, and, and I think sometimes when you have a romance, it exists in a bubble. And I, I think I really wanted to explore a sort of romance that has strings attached and that there are other factors and it, it's not always easy. And so it's important to me to explore the idea of, of um, someone's like great love is not necessarily their first love nor is it necessarily an easy love either mm-hmm. and this everything in here is fairly difficult for everybody involved no nothing is easy yet. For anybody that I can think of, no, not, not no, at all. No one really has an easy time of it. It's true. <laughs> you know, as you were uh, creating Celia, there's some really great scenes and of her and her childhood. And you know, her father is kind of he's you know, abusive in many ways. And but what's interested me is that even though he's abusive, you, you write it in such a manner that you have these scenes of what I'd call poignant cruelty. <laughs> that's a tough thing oh, that's to pull off. That's a nice off. way to put it. Uh, I think 
it probably helped that I understood when I was writing these kind of horrible things. I knew why he was doing it. And I think even Celia gets to the point later in the book where she understands why he's doing it. And I don't think it's it's about being abusive or cruel just for the sake of being cruel. He has a reason that he's doing what he's doing to her. He's trying to make her stronger, but which it, is kind of a, a horrible way of doing it. But it, it's, it's it, his reasoning. Well, it's also, too, it's fairly self-serving. It's just so he can this win true. this uh, yeah. competition. And on the other hand, Mr. Alexander H. and his protege, they also have uh, a problems. One of the things I liked about Marco was the, his infatuation with trees. And this, this comes in again with uh, Bailey sitting up in the tree. And all I could think of, the first thing I when I read in the description in his notebook of the, the tree, all I could think of was Yggdrasil, the world tree. And I'm wondering... Oh, if, yay! Was that was, that that was deliberate? Defi- it was definitely... I, I actually... I had at one point, I had an Odin reference in there um, with, with the world tree, and I think it got edited out at some point. But definitely going back to, to the, the tree theme, was, was it was definitely a motif that I was playing with and, and kind of um, brought back a lot of times that there's... Um, many trees that are significant within the book. Now, uh, you also bring back the, you, you play with Merlin a bit, and and this and uh, we have stories within stories, and, and actually there's even a chapter called Stories near the mm-hmm. end of the book. So talk about incorporating the different kind of shards of fairy tale, both as, you know, verbatim as we get in one point. Uh, I think it's uh, Widget tells a, a story that's mm-hmm. essentially a, a version of the, of the Merlin story. Yes. And then, but there are other kind of like little shards, like I said, there are there's a some scenes that are very sleepy hollowish where they will go in and they kind of drift off and wake up. Oh my god! And all this time has passed. I, I think I, I it was kind of playing with that sort of classic storytelling idea where I wanted little bits and pieces of story and and I think everything became sort of fragmentary at one point. I, I I knew I wanted to tell the whole story sort of in vignettes. I wanted it to have a storytelling sort of feel. So I think pulling from these classic stories it. it worked well for the tone and I think there are little Shakespeare illusions here and there and and, and that's I wanted it to have a sort of um, in in I think the whole idea of when it, there was the chapter called stories and, and so much of it is about the story is kind of about stories and it's about each character's different story and, and maybe it gets a little meta there when it, like it's a story about stories but I think it is in a way you know, you have a, a really interesting sense of of telling a story in this novel because the the chronology is is all very layered, and we're kind of zipping back and forth in time um, from one chapter to the next. It you know we're one we're ten years back, we're one year up, we're one year back, we're one year up. As you were putting this together, I'm wondering, did you have like a spreadsheet or a database? I did have a spreadsheet. It actually originally was less linear than it is now. Um, I wanted originally the the structure of the book itself to feel like the circus because the circus is so many individual tents. Like I wanted you to be getting the story in little individual stories and, and then see how they all tie together. But um, I ended up kind of streamlining it a bit. So there's really there, – there are two overlapping timelines mm-hmm. and then they're interspersed with little like uh, vignettes about the circus itself. But um, I, I think – it it worked well for the complexity of the storyline to kind of have it um, 
be layered. And I, I did at one point actually have to just check every single date because I was sure. I, I think I had someone being the wrong age at some point. I was like, like having to like cross check all my dates. So you really had a spreadsheet. Oh, that's, I really did. That's great. Uh, as you were, you know, uh, creating, did that help with the plotting? Did that kind of, uh, once you laid that out, did that influence what the plotting was? I think that it came sort of at the same sort of time when I I, knew, I had key events mm-hmm. and I, I knew sort of where things needed to happen and when things needed to happen. And I think um, having it structured, it taking place over such a long period of time and kind of I wanted certain things to happen at one point and, and then would influence other things that happen and sort of like, it's a very sort of slow tension rise it, it, it over the the book takes place over the course of like 20 30 years so i needed ways to keep it true to that expanse of time but also keep the the plot very like complicated well i think one of the ways you do this is uh with reveals you know to show us different things partway through and there's some really great reveals in here so i would like you to just talk a little bit about that as a you know as a plot point is to tell us something and go oh my god because that really (laughs) casts the whole thing in a new light i i wanted it to be um not very straightforward and i and again that same idea of like it feeling like the circus when you're exploring it and you're getting to know more and and you turn another corner and there's something else entirely and and i think that's where the idea of not revealing everything right away and kind of saving little bits to 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 be revealed further on like the it's almost like if if the book is its own hall of mirrors, you see more in certain mirrors than others. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one thing, too, as I finished the book, I thought, boy, I could reread this book and have a really different and equally interesting reading experience. I am told it holds up well to rereading. Yeah, that's what would make sense. Now, one thing you talk about in here a lot are I, who the people who play a big part are the revours. And, and this is, I think, a really key to this book because these are the people who appreciate the art and this is in a sense your creation your vision of your readers I think it's flattering to think (laughs) it's my vision of my readers but I think the circus itself is such a special like unique place that I I knew once I started developing characters who were part of its audience that it would it would develop its sort of fandom mm-hmm. like the people who who love it and the way like um, I think there's something wonderful about when you have a shared love of something like no matter what it is and that community that that grows from that which I think you see now especially like in on on the internet and I was just at comic-con in the summer and like you, you you get that with like people who love the same things create a wonderful sense of community. So I, I wanted to explore that as, a, as an idea and also kind of give a little more weight to the importance of the circus beyond the competition, beyond what's actually going on. It's something else to different people. Now, one aspect of this, and we mentioned this earlier, actually I opened the interview talking about uh, the tarot. And as I was reading this uh, book, it struck me all of a sudden that, you know, fortune tellers are at heart storytellers. I did like that idea that, like, that um, this, especially with tarot, I think because the artwork is so complicated in certain cards, they they are like sort of little stories in and of themselves. And and tarot reading, at least to me, I'm sure like more professional tarot readers might disagree with me, but there is an aspect of, of seeing 
these little stories on pieces of paper and how they overlap and how that influences the story of, of whoever you're reading for. Um, but it, I do think that's an interesting way of thinking of fortune telling. As as we you know read the novel and experience this the various forms of magic, I really like this kind of vision of uh, of of Celia's physical magic, and it's kind of a ESP almost like you know it's, it's psychic powers. But we now the way you write it, it doesn't feel like that. You keep it back from that. You ratchet it back. The whole novel's ratcheted back from the usual things that might kind of like, I think, drag it down. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you did this deliberately and how you did it. I think you did it at a prose level. To If I did, I wasn't terribly conscious of it. Oh, really? But I knew, uh, I knew Celia in essence, especially like from the very beginning, she's telekinetic. Like, mm-hmm. like she can affect physical things with her mind. And I think in putting that in a context of this is an innate magical power that she has rather than just like a psychic ability. Like it, it sort of maybe puts a different sort of spin on it than it could have been like something different than it is. Well, you know, I think what it what it does is I was, you know, thinking that to a degree she's kind of like Carrie, but mm-hmm. Carrie had nothing to say. I almost just made that reference. <laughs> she, Carrie had nothing to say. And what um for all the ill that this whole competition that's set up between her and Marco does to the two of them, they both are given by virtue of their training and upbringing something to say, and they're both kind of like dueling artists. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you found you know so talk a little bit about you know this create this idea of artists in a duel. Um, I liked that it was kind of a a, a contest or a, a, a competition where you were basically showing off skill like it's it's they're put in a venue where they're able to just show off and i think it was an interesting thing to me because it, it, it's not straightforward it's it's not an easy easily countered like one person can't make a chess move that someone else counters it was very much about thinking outside the box for both of them to to kind of create like the next best thing and i i I think it was just sort of an interesting way for me to explore the ideas, how you would really try to work in, in something that's so vague <laughs> that isn't really a, a, a contest that has particular rules. You know, um, too, and that leads to the competition becoming a, a, a collaboration, sometimes deliberate and sometimes not. And I think you have an interesting vision of this um, in terms of the way it leads to in and out of romance with these characters. So, I, you know, you have a very complicated uh, vision of all of this stuff. It is. I, I liked that whole idea of um, at, at certain points, Celia doesn't even know who her competitor is. But I think she it, it, there's definitely a sort of mutual respect that grows and then becomes something more than, than just respect. Um because I think because they're both like competing by like their it's not their fight, so I, I knew that their attitudes toward it would be different. So I, I wanted to see how that would influence like what actually happened. You know, and that also leads to you know a natural shift. We as as readers realize that wait, the the people that are supposed to be um, 
you know, competitors are are not the competitors, and not only they're not competing against each other, they're the people who think they're proxies for are are they don't realize that they've set themselves up against their own students, and I think that's an interesting mutation that you know the readers can pull experience. It's fun, really fun as a reader to experience all this oh, stuff. Good. I'm glad. Could you talk about uh, just creating? Um, that kind of uh, competition where everything kind of just shifts slowly. This this book, in many ways, everything in this book is like the the clock that's at the center <laughs> of the of the of the, uh, of the circus. It moves, you know, it moves inexorably yeah. and frighteningly towards a conclusion. I think I wanted that sort of idea that everything sort of changes as time goes on, and it become it's about one thing, and then that becomes more complicated as. Time goes on as more people become involved, and, and it kind of evolves into something else entirely. And I know this book grew out of you know the kind of bits you wrote about the circus. So um, clearly, set pieces are very important to you in your writing, and you must enjoy them. I do, I, I like the whole world of a of, of book. I, I like that um, the whole atmosphere, even down to to what things smell like. I, I get hung up on a lot. Um, but um, it's definitely that the stuff, the fictional stuff of a world is, in, is just as important to me as the characters. Well, you you research the smell. You actually credit somebody for smell research. I do. My, my very favorite perfume company is called Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab. Um, they're a California-based company, and they make beautiful artisan perfume oils, but they also have, always have amazing descriptions for, for each of them. So, And I started really getting into to perfume because of them years ago. So then while I was writing, I was constantly thinking, of, well, what does this tent smell like? You know, and smell is such an evocative uh, sense because it really calls back memory and time. It's the mm-hmm. most intense, uh, intensely emotionally affecting uh, sense. Yes. And could you, uh, have has that always been that way for you or... I think so. I, I know sometimes I'll get like hit by a scent and just like all of a sudden like it it's almost like palpable how like a memory will hit you when you have that like smell that that takes you back to some place. And, and I think it, it's an interesting sense to play with. And I think it, it's hard to do in in writing. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm glad that people seem to think that the I got across some of the the circus smells. Well, that's a, you're right. The smell is very difficult. And as you were, you know, laying this out, it, there's a couple of things that strike us right off the bat is, you know, you open up with a second person segment and, and we have these throughout the book. Were those at the beginning of the book? Or? Yes. The, the, when I first started just sitting down and describing the circus, it was always in second person. And I think it's because it's the way you would describe the circus to someone. You mm-hmm. explain how you walk through the gates. You go this way. You turn this way. You you walk into a tent. You would use the, the you um, when you were trying to explain it to someone. So when I was sitting there writing it, trying to just explain it like in words, it was the natural perspective for me to write it in. And you also chose to write the uh, the other portions in the present tense too, which I think I thought was odd. I think, I liked it. I think that came about because because I knew I wanted to have the second person interludes. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it would be too jarring to be switching back and forth, both from second person to third person and from present tense to past tense. So it just 
to my ear, it sounded better rhythmically to have everything be in present tense. Well, I would agree. It must have presented some writing challenges for you, though. I think actually now that I've been working on it so long, my writing voice naturally falls into present tense. <laughs> I find it harder to write in past tense now. I really do. Really? that um, That's very interesting. Some of the descriptions of the tense are really evocative and sensuous. And, you know, there's uh, almost sexual imagery in there. And I'm wondering if you realize that or if that just kind of happened. I think it just kind of happened. There is a section that my critique partner says that it's the best sexless sex scene she's ever read. <laughs> like in the section with the paper trees and, and the tent. Um, but um, I think most of it was... Pro- I do like a, a very... I think I'm a very sensory writer. I'm always thinking about, like, the sense, like, the experience like what things feel like, what things smell like. So I think in describing it probably naturally kind of went in a a sensual and maybe sometimes sexual direction. Are you working on anything else when you were writing this, since this seems to be kind of uh, put together out of pieces? Are there any pieces of this that have ended up somewhere else or might end up somewhere else? There are lots of little abandoned bits of the circus. I I don't know what will happen to them eventually. I, I have... Um, plenty of things. I originally had um, the circus tent descriptions. Each one is probably several thousand words long rather than the couple hundred that that each one eventually became. So there's definitely a lot of material still floating about. Do you know what's your next book? Are you have you started working on it? I've started working on my next book. It is completely different. Um, It's also in present tense so far. Um, (laughs) But um, it's sort of a um, film noir flavored Alice in Wonderland and I'm still very much in that exploratory stage where I'm still figuring out where the story wants to go. It sounds like there's going to be an aspect of the fantastic then in that uh, way. I was going to say, I'm, I'm always kind of a fantastical writer, I think, um, even though it might not have that same sort of actual magic quality. I, I like that sort of layer of the, the, the fantastic over like everything it gives uh, it makes your reading the books it, it speaks to the actual reading experience itself because as we're sitting there we're kind of inventing this world out of words and it's nice when the the world is not exactly like supposed to be exactly like the world we live in exactly i've been speaking with erin morgenstern her new novel is the night circus thank you for joining me erin and thank you for having me You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.